we are uh, continuing in our Job series that we just started again, just got back into it again. And uh, last Sunday, we wrapped up Eliphaz's third and final speech where he argues against Job saying that, Job, you cannot hide your sins because he thinks Job has hidden sin. You cannot hide your hidden sins from God who walks in the vault of heaven, who basically sees all things and knows all things. So he argued that point to Job. Job's like, okay, whatever. And then he also tried to appeal to Job one last time to come clean on these hidden sins, to confess these hidden sins to God so that his prosperity, awesome life before all his travail came, so that all that would return. And then you have Job's response to Eliphaz's final speech, and it's recorded in Job chapters 23 and 24. And this morning, we're going to look at the first section of his response to Eliphaz. We'll be camped out in chapter 23. It's only 17 verses. Bruce read it earlier. Um, if you guys could, if you're not there already, please take your Bibles and turn to Job 23. You might already be there because we read it a moment ago. I've got three letters for you. Three D's. Three D's. And I'd like to pray and ask for God's help before we uh, get into this. Lord, thank you for this morning and, and for all that has taken place thus far. We're thankful for the voices that you've given us to sing with and the hearts that you've set aflame with your words so that we can sing with great love for you and passion. And we thank you for the words in the songs and for the lyrics and for the truth that is in them. And we thank you for an opportunity to, to worship you through giving and through the reading of Scripture and just all the things that have done so far. I know there's children that are in a couple of different rooms here at the building that are going to worship you through study and even through playful times in these things. Lord, just thank you for all that is happening, has happened so far, Lord. We pray that you help us to focus on your Word now and you teach us from your Word. And uh, I think this is probably my favorite response from Job thus far. Sounds like to me, he's really starting to kind of get some things that he needs to get, and he's starting to say some things that, that are good. And uh, not that everything he said before wasn't good, but there's, this is just really a great chapter. So Lord, uh, immerse us in it and teach us from it. Ground us in the doctrines that are here in your word and uh, cause us through the study time to become a little bit more like Jesus. Sanctify us by your word. We submit to you and love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First letter or first D we have, we're picking up right where we left off last week. We're going to look at Job's desperation. Essentially, he responds to Eliphaz with a heightened kind of desperation in his words and in his attitude. And we see this in verses 1 through 9. We'll bite off smaller chunks We'll pick it up at verses 1 and 2. This is what Job, the very first thing he says to Eliphaz after Eliphaz completes his third speech. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Um, the first thing I thought of when I read that was at what point throughout this book and throughout all your responses was your hand not heavy and your complaint not bitter? <laughs> Every time he responds, there's a bitterness to what he's saying. And, but here he's saying, well, today's a new day for me to be embittered by my circumstances. It's kind of what he begins with. And really what he's doing is he's describing his heart, and his heart is incredibly anguished. He has a, a really deep, penetrating, abiding anguish in his heart. All of his circumstances and, and God's silence and seemingly God is seemingly absent, it just... It's just crushing him emotionally, spiritually, and you know his health was crushed physically. So he's, he's really anguished at this point. He expresses it by saying, my complaint is bitter. Like I said, I don't know of a moment where any of his complaining wasn't bitter. But here it's especially bitter. And then he, he uses this phrase, this poetic phrase, his, his hand is heavy on account of his groaning. What he's really saying is that 
Um, I, I, I've had all the strength sucked out of my body. My body is weakened. My hands don't have strength. My arms don't have strength. I, I, my back doesn't have strength. My legs don't have strength. You know, he's so zapped by his affliction that he just doesn't even really have the strength to sit there and keep listening to these bitter responses from his friends. He's just kind of at his emotional wit's end. And, uh, and his biggest issue, I think, isn't what, it isn't their attacks on him. It, it is their attacks, but it's a specific part of it. But it's not even the loss of his, his wealth, family, and health. Those things were terrible. Uh, these things, he was suffering tremendously from them. But the thing that really inspired this zapped strength, deep anguish and weakness is the fact that he thinks he thinks. It's a factual that he thinks that it's not an actual fact, but it's factual in that he thinks God is gone. God is gone. His suffering was so compounded and impactful on him that he felt as if even when he was praying, his prayers were just ricocheting off the ceiling. Like God is wearing a bulletproof prayer vest and nothing can get to him. This is, this is what he's thinking. This is his spiritual and emotional state. So really the thing that bothered him the most during this whole ordeal wasn't all those terrible losses. It was the idea that God has left me in this situation. He's not hearing me. He's not listening to my prayer. This is what has made his complaint on this particular day especially bitter and his hands being very heavy, feeling like lead. I can't even lift up my hands. And what makes it worse is what Eliphaz just said to him. What did he say to Job? Chapter 22, verse 23. He said, you need to return to the Almighty. Okay, your situation here is that you're hiding sin. You need to repent. You need to go to God and return to God. This is what Eliphaz argued in all of chapter 22, essentially. You need to go to him. And Job is now telling Eliphaz, look, my complaint is increasingly bitter today because I have tried and I have tried and I have tried to do exactly what you're telling me to do. I have gone to God every three minutes and I can't find him. They are telling him to do what he perceives to be impossible. I'm, I'm trying to go to him. Have you ever had somebody do that? Like you're in a serious situation and people are telling you, you need to spend more time in prayer, you need to go to God, and then your response to them is, I am, but it's not alleviated. It's not going away. In fact, I don't even hear from him. You ever felt like that? You ever been brought to the end of yourself? And what drives you crazy the most in that situation? The pain that you're going through, the suffering that you're going through, or the perceived, imagined absence of God and His silence. Or the fact that you've been praying for Him to change you over and over. And why do I stay this way? You hate who you're becoming. And you're crying out to Him day and night. Change me, change me, change me. And nothing. I, I think every real Christian has felt that way. If you haven't felt that way, maybe you're not a real Christian. We, we experience times of, of great travail where God does seem absent. The darkness is, is so, so powerful, it shrouds our understanding and sight and our spiritual sight, and, and it feels as if God is gone or our struggle with our own flesh is so great and tremendous, we feel like we can't get any relief from it. I don't want to be this man anymore. God, change me. You say this and nothing happens. This is where he's at. The, he's, 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 he's literally hanging by a thread at the end of his rope. And so it really isn't helpful for his friends to keep telling him to go to God. I know this, he's saying. I'm trying, he's saying. I've tried everything. There's nothing else for me to do. All I have left is maybe, maybe all I have left in this life is God and you nag some friends and, and, and I've been going to him and I, I can't find him. He's not here. 
He's not here. Eliphaz, in his last speech, even tells Job where to find God. I not only want you to go to God, because that's the answer here, and you go to him and confess, but here's where you can find him. Here's where you go to find him, he is saying. He said it when he said it like this, is, is not God in the highest heavens? 22 verse 12. So, so we know God is in the highest heavens. He walks in the vault of, of heaven. He's above all things. So what do we do? We have to, we have to transcend where we're at in our circumstances and, and pray in such a way that would usher us into the presence of God where he is most high. This is what Eliphaz is, is saying in a sense there in his last speech. And Job is saying, I, I'm, I'm, I'm praying to God wherever he may be, but I get no response. I think he's gone. I know where he's at. And really what's happening here is Job's suffering is overruling his theological understanding. It's overruling everything. It's overruling his emotions. It's overruling his flesh. It's overruling everything, especially his, his understanding of who God is. And, and this is something that can happen to all of us. And it's, if, if it's not happening to you in the midst of a fiery trial, it's certainly tempting you to forget about the truths that you've learned and know and understood and put your faith in. Do fiery trials not cause us to doubt the promises of God? Yes, they do. Yeah, there's really no one that, that goes through Job-level suffering and doesn't experience what he's experienced. I don't see how it's possible. And I've boasted about his response to it, which I think is better than anyone would be in this room, especially my own. You need to go to God. Here's where you find him. Job saying, I've done everything. I have no power and strength left, no focus left. I have nothing left, but I've exhausted what I had left on that quest and goal. And I've, I've got nothing. And he's just, he's just blinded. He's spiritually blinded, in a sense, from truth. He and his friends here, even though these guys were knuckleheads, they all affirmed God's omnipresence, the fact that God is everywhere. They knew that as a divine truth. They understood that God is everywhere, that, yes, he walks on the vault of heaven and he's above all things. He's the most high God, that he's there at that level, but that he's also imminent and right here with us. They understood this. It's expressed in Job 34, 21. They affirm that truth there. Elihu does, the, the fourth friend who has not yet spoken. But what's going on here is that Job is doubting and question, questioning this divine attribute of God and this wonderful, comforting truth. He's just, I, I just don't know if it's true. If God doesn't feel like he's here, he must not be here. And what on earth would it feel like for God to be in your presence. You know what it feels like? Death. Because no one can stand in his presence because he's too glorious. Moses had to be hidden in a, the cleft of a rock to, to get the shadow of God. But people today, I, I, he doesn't feel like he's here. They base everything on how they feel. Make, big mistake. We need to understand, as I'd said already, that suffering can have the exact same effect on us it can overrule our theological, our biblical understanding. It can cause us to doubt God's presence. It can cause us to doubt God's grace and mercy. It can cause us to doubt God's goodness. We just sang a truth in that second song that talked about during those times when life is hard and things are difficult. I'm, I'm elaborating on what it said, but if you're hurting, there is a truth that you can remember that brings soothing to the soul. God is good. God is good. You forget about the goodness of God during these sorts of fiery trials, don't you? I do. God doesn't seem to be all that good when I'm going through these things. Fiery trials like Job is going through, they can blind us from the truth we need to understand Something, first of all, that the divine attribute, incommunicable attribute of omnipresence, God being everywhere, stands forever. He is everywhere. Your circumstances don't change that. Your feelings don't change that. We'll talk about this more toward the end, but that's a truth that stands. And another thing that we fail to understand is that God's desire, what God intends through 
our suffering is to drive us to himself, not away from himself. Okay? God uses these things to pull us to him, not put distance between us and him. Huge difference. When Paul's, the Apostle Paul's painful thorn was acting up, God invited him over and over to draw closer to himself. Why? To experience more and more of his grace. As he said it, draw unto me. He is saying to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, essentially when your thorn is acting up, you need to draw near to me. Why? Because my grace is what? Sufficient. It will bring soothing and calm to your battered soul. So God does not do what Job imagines that God does, that God has blown his life apart and has fled from Job. He he's using these situations. He uses these situations to draw us closer to himself, not to drive us away, to drive us into his word where his promises are, not away from his word. And one of the first things we do when all hell breaks loose is we don't even go to the word. We don't spend time in prayer. We just start moaning and groaning and complaining, don't we? That's verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 and 4, Job says this, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat, exclamation point. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Job is, is telling Eliphaz that if he knew where to find God, believe me, pal, I would go to him at once. If I knew where his seat was, yeah, you've said it's in the highest heavens and all that, but if I really knew where it was, I would go right to his seat. I would draw near to the throne of grace in boldness and, and, and confess and do whatever is necessary for me to know that God is with me. This is what he's saying. I would go right to him, and, and, and if I could do that, if I could find his seat, as, as surely as, as, as Steve is seated right there, if God were seated right there, I would go right to where he is, right there, and I would fill my mouth with arguments, and I would, I would plead my case with God. That's what I would do if I could find him. I would approach his seat with confidence, and I would lay my case before the Almighty, filling my mouth with arguments. Now, he is not saying that he would go to the throne or seat of God and argue with God. That would be irreverent and foolish. He's saying, I would just go with a prepared argument like a good attorney, and I would present my case before the Almighty. That's what I would do if I could only follow your advice and find a seat and go to him. I would do it, Eliphaz, believe me. This is what he's saying in 3 and 4. Five through seven, he says this, I would know what God would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Job tells Eliphaz that he knows and understands what God would say if he could find the seed of God and argue his case before the Almighty. If I could find where he's at and go to him, I know exactly what I would say, and I know exactly what he would say in response. I know what he would say to me. He certainly wouldn't say to me the things that you've been saying to me, like confess sin that I don't have to confess. Job understands that an upright man, that God would not literally contend with a man who is upright, one who believes in Jesus Christ, one who is trusting in God, one who has put their, their faith in God, one who is, is walking in righteousness, one who lives the, the, the lifestyle that God calls that man or woman to live, not utter perfection, but in, in some kind of holiness and practical righteousness and, and living for God. He says, an upright man can, can approach the throne and seat of God in this way and argue his case, and God will listen and God will understand. In other words, an a non-upright man, heathen, wicked, they can't approach God like this. But that's not me. He tells Eliphaz that if, if this were a possibility, he could go to God and argue, God would listen and understand, and God would not flex the greatness of his power and crush me as you think he would. He wouldn't crush me like a grape. No, he would pay attention to me. And after hearing my case, Eliphaz, if I could argue my case, 
God the judge would clear me of all charges. He would acquit me forever and ever and ever. This is what he tells his friend. I do love and appreciate Job's confidence and boldness. I do. It's inspiring. And some people misread and misunderstand him, and they say, oh, he's, he's not humble. He's very self-righteous. Look at what he's saying here. That's, that, that's not at all what the text is, is telling us. When you know that you haven't done what somebody is suggesting that you've done over and over and over, you know you're clear, right? The problem is, is that if you subject yourself to their arguments long enough, you'll start to believe what they're saying. This is why you have to choose your friends wisely. Bad company corrupts good character, good morals. He knows that God would not stamp him out. He's bold, he's confident that if he could argue, God would listen and, and acquit him. Why? Because Job knew what his life was like. He knew that he had faith, which was a precious gift given to him. He was a man of faith. He was a man who lived for God. He was positionally righteous by grace, and he was practically righteous in his daily life. He lived out a kind of righteousness that all believers are called to live out. He did this perfectly? No, but he did it. He did not fear God's judgment because he was a saved man. Now, he certainly feared God's discipline, but not judgment. Job was the, the kind of believer, or a, a genuine believer, who bore fruits in keeping with repentance, Luke 3.8. He was a repentant man, and he kept bearing that fruit of repentance, turning away from sin. For crying out loud, chapter 1 says the guy prayed for his kids in case they sinned. That tells you a lot about him, doesn't it? He wasn't just praying for himself and making offerings for himself. He did it for his own children because he suspected that, you know, 21-year-olds can get pretty stupid. They go down to the Black Angus. Remember that? I just totally dated myself. Never went there to eat. He just knew. He was a, a righteous man who practiced righteousness, practical righteousness. He lived it out. Not perfectly, but he did it. And you know what? Every true believer can make this same boast. You're not self-righteous when you make this boast. You're not being a, a Pharisee when you make this boast. You're not. God does not contend with us with the greatness of His power, right? If I go to God, I have a sin issue or any kind of struggle or trial or anything that I need from God. If I, I, I am told to approach the throne of grace boldly with confidence that God will listen to me and give me grace in my time of need, I can do that. Why? Because God does not contend with me. He does not contend with you. If you are His child, in the greatness of His power, He contended with Jesus on the cross with the greatness of his power as he crushed his son so they wouldn't have to crush you. Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the will of the Father to crush the Son. He used his divine, awesome power, all power, to smoke his Son on the cross so that you wouldn't get smoked in the eternal fires of hell. If he did that to Jesus... Out of love for you, how does he see you at your worst as his child whom he loves? We don't have to contend with him. He dealt with Jesus on the cross. Because of Christ and our faith in Christ, God the judge has acquitted us forever. And he pays close attention to us as a good Father would. He is Abba, Daddy. Amen? He listens. He's sensitive. He's tender. Yes, He is awesome. 
you can't even look upon his, his, his literal presence. I mean, how does he even have a literal presence? He's spirit, but he manifests himself in such a way. But, but if, if you could see the face of God, God doesn't literally have a face. He does in Christ. But if he had a face and you looked into his face, you would die because of his holiness and glory. And yet he invites us right into his presence because he loves us so much so he displayed his ultimate love in crushing the sun for us. Nothing ever changes this. Nothing. He is our Abba, Mark 14, 36. Jesus called him Abba. Romans 8, 15, Paul tells us he is our Abba, Hebrew or Aramaic for daddy. So remember this. Verses 8 and 9, behold, Job says, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right, but I do not see him. Job is telling Eliphaz that when he tries to, to go to God and to find God and to present his argument to God, all his attempts fail because he cannot find him. I can't find God. When I, when I go forward, God is not there. When I, when I go backwards, I, I can't perceive his, his presence when I go backwards. When, 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 uh, when I work with my left hand, I, I, I can't tell that he's there. When I, um, when I do not behold God then, when I, when I turn to the right or work with my right hand, I, I cannot see God. This is what he's saying to Eliphaz. In other words, when I go north, south, east, or west, I cannot find God. That's what he's saying. God is nowhere to be found. God is like Elvis. He has left the building. That's what he thinks. This is what he thinks. He is ultimately saying to Eliphaz, if I could return to the Almighty, I would. But it doesn't matter what direction I go in because I cannot find him. It just doesn't matter what I do. I try and I try and I try, I try and I try and I try. This is his desperation. The second D, number two, Job's declaration, verses 10 through 12. We pick it up in verse 10a. I love what he says here. This is where, this is where it starts to get really encouraging, even for us. He says in 10a, but he knows the way that I take. I love that. I, I can't seem to find him. He seems to be silent and absent like he's left the building. I can't find him. I'm doing what you're saying. I'm trying to go to him. I can't find him no matter what I do, north, south, east, or west, no matter what. But he knows the ways that I take. Even though I can't find him, he still knows me. Essentially, what he's telling Eliphaz is that uh, even despite the fact that I can't find him, God knows my life inside and out, every way and path that I take. He's referring to the omniscience here of God, the fact that God knows all things. He's affirming what Eliphaz has said. He's, he, he walks in the vault of heaven, giving him the bird's eye view. He sees and knows all things. He's affirming what Eliphaz said. He's agreeing with Eliphaz's even part of Eliphaz's statement about God judging through deep darkness, right? That if God can judge through deep darkness, according to Eliphaz, that means God can see and know all things, right? That's his point in chapter 22, verse 13. He's affirming what Eliphaz has said. I, I, I know. I can't find him. I don't know where he's at, but he knows where I'm at, and he knows where I'm going through. He, he knows exactly what's up. That's what he's saying. He's also saying, guess what? He knows all my ways, meaning there's no hidden sin in my life. If there were, he would know about it. And I think Eliphaz at this point would say something like, that's why you're getting punished and you've lost everything. Remember, these guys don't have a third category for righteous suffering. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. And that's it. There's no in-between. There's no such thing in Eliphaz's world of the good getting bad. It's not the way the universe works. You think that, you'll never understand Jesus. You'll never understand Job. He's a righteous man. He knows the way that I take, even though I can't find him. Verse 10b, listen to this. This is it. This is the good stuff. Here's the gold. Here's the gold of Ophir. Remember the high end 24 carat in that day? 
Listen to what Job says. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Hallelujah. Job is starting to get it. Amen? He's starting to understand that, that there's a purpose behind his fiery trial and its refinement. That God is going to purify him to a greater level and, and help him to walk in greater purity through this terrible experience. This is what he's saying. This is wonderful. This is a, a turning point here for Job. He's literally declaring that, that God has a divine purpose for his suffering. And he is, he is expressing, again, his confidence. He just expressed some confidence right a moment ago um, in, in that he could go right to the throne and argue his case. I could do that if I could find it. But now he's expressing another kind of confidence here. And that confidence is that by the time it's all said and done, God is going to have his way with me and refine me and I'll come out as purified gold on the backside. That's what he's saying. Man, don't know if you've ever looked into the processes used to refine gold. They're very many centuries old. The two most common methods are flame or chemical. I don't think they do much of the flame stuff anymore, but they do the chemical stuff more in our day and age. Flame refinement is certainly the oldest method. It involved a craftsman sitting next to a hot fire with, a molt, with molten gold and a crucible being stirred and skimmed to remove the impurities or dross that rose to the top of the molten metal. Right? Gold, when you dig it, when you get gold ore out of the ground, it's got all sorts of impurities and non-gold alloys in it. And you melt it down and, and the impurities and the non-gold alloys rise to the top and you just kind of slide them out. And by the time it's all said and done, you end up with the 24 karat, the gold of Ophir. Chemical refinement is a little different. It involves the use of very, very strong acids like hydrochloric and a couple others to dissolve the impurities in the gold ore. And then afterwards, they are neutralized and washed away, taking the impurities with them. The resulting product is a kind of an ugly, muddy substance, but it's almost pure gold, 99.999. 24 karat. And this muddy substance is dried until it is a powdered residue, and then it's heated with a torch, and uh, they kind of refashion it into gold blocks or what have you, or into just solid gold. That's the two ways that gold are refined. Now, Job, I say this, why? Why are we getting a lesson in gold? Because Job knows what refinement's about. He's talking about his life being refined like gold. He's talking about flame refinement, because that was around in his day. Probably the days of, of Abraham, long, long ago, long before Christ ever came. He's pointing to flame refinement. He is using flame refinement as a metaphor to describe the sanctification process of his life. This metaphor, the refinement metaphor, it's throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 48.10, God told Israel, Behold, I have refined you, but not as... Silver, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. God is telling the Israelites, I put you through affliction, through much travail to refine you. This is what Job is saying, essentially, and this is before Isaiah was written. In Daniel 11.35, it says, Some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. There's another example of where the metaphor of gold refinement is used to purify a people. In Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, it says, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. Exact same metaphor, purifying a people, making them like gold. Job is essentially telling Eliphaz that God is putting him through a fiery trial to purify him like gold. We should see our fiery trials the exact same way. God is putting me through this fiery trial for the purpose of my own sanctification to make me more like Jesus, to purify me, remove more impurities, more fleshly struggles and these sorts of things. He's bringing me through this process to do some additional 
purifying works in my life, in my heart. We should look at it exactly the same way. We should see suffering as the crucible in which God sanctifies and purifies His people. Amen? And Job is getting that here now, finally. What did Pastor James exhort us to do? He said, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James 1, 2 to 4. What is James talking about here? The fiery trials that God uses to refine us and to produce steadfastness. And then steadfastness through additional uh, through additional. Uh, um, refinement work eventually leads to maturity or it brings about maturation. Don't see your trials as anything other than a, a crucible in which God is refining you. That's the way that you see it. Don't see it as love loss. Don't see it as God's absence. See it as God's work. Amen? That's what Job is teaching us here. Isn't this wonderful? Is that an easy thing to do? No, Job, what are you thinking? It's not, but it's the way that we must view it. 11 and 12, he says, my, my foot has held fast. This is interesting. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and I have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. Uh, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Now, this... Looks a little bit like Job is boasting about his clean, righteous lifestyle. Isn't that kind of what it looks like? Like he's telling Eliphaz, look, you're saying I have hidden sin and that's why I'm suffering. I'm telling you that this is how I've lived my life. It looks like he's kind of boasting about who he is and how he's lived his life, but that's not at all what he's actually doing here. He's not boasting about his clean, obedient lifestyle. He's declaring the end result of his fiery trial the refinement and purification God will develop in his life through that fiery trial. How, how, what will God produce in his life? How will God purify him and what will he produce through this fiery trial? Uh, what will happen is, is that Job's feet will hold fast to God's steps to a greater degree. I will, I will be able to, through this situation, I will be able to walk in his word, in his commands to a greater level. Because God will wash away and burn out some of those impurities. This is what he's saying. I'll be able to keep God's way and I will not turn aside. In other words, you know what? I, I, I do that now, but, but, but sometimes I fail and I get distracted. But once this trial is over, I'll be able to really live out his will in, in a way that I wasn't able to before. He's saying, um, through this thing, God is going to make it so that I won't depart from the commandment of His lips. In other words, I'm going to love God's Word all the more. I'm going to love His commands, and I'm going to pursue them with, with greater energy and passion than I did before. And he ends it with this wonderful statement, which I think is true of him in this moment, and it will be even more true of him when it's all over with, that he will treasure God's words more than food. He's talking about who he is, but not really. He's talking about who he's going to become. And I think we would all agree, according to chapters 1 and 2, that's who he already was. But he's saying that by the time this nasty, terrible situation is over, I will be able to do these things in, in, in greater frequency and bring my God even more glory. He will make me more pure through this. I will come out as what? Gold. That's what he's saying. I would say by God's grace, Job was pretty good at these things before calamity struck. He was a devout man who loved and lived for God. But he is telling Eliphaz that when my fiery trial is over, God will have removed even more purities from my life so that I can live for God at an even higher level. God will work through my suffering to purify me so that I can practice even greater purity on a day-to-day -day basis. This is what he's boasting about. He's not boasting about what he is right then. He's boasting about what he's going to become. He's able to boast about his fiery trial instead of complaining about it for 22 chapters. That's what he's doing. 
Do you see a turn in him, a change in his attitude here? He'll dash it to pieces soon, don't worry. No, he's, 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 he's making progress. And really, the second half of verse 12 is also a shot. It's a punch in the face of Eliphaz in a sense because he charged Job with cherishing the regular gold and gold of Ophir above all else, right? Chapter 22, verse 24, he told him, you need to lay your gold in the dust and give away your gold of Ophir because that's your idol, that's your God. He charged him with that. And Job is saying, not true, pal. I actually cherish the words of God's mouth more than even my food. And what does food do that gold can't? keep you alive. And he's saying not only that as a rebuke to the guy who blamed him for worshiping his gold, he's saying that as a rebuke to him, but also as a promise that will come from God through the fiery trial. I will love his word even more. He's saying that, man, I love God's word more than I love the thing that keeps me alive. Job is a believer in the truth that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. Amen? He believes that God's word sustains him. That's why he can choose God's word over physical food. If I don't have God's word, which I'm not hearing now in this situation, this is why my strength is gone. This is why I feel like I'm dying. Because he's cut off his word from me. This is what he's saying. I love his word more than anything else. And it is true that God's Word keeps us spiritually alive. God's Spirit working through His Word keeps us spiritually alive, grows us, sanctifies us. There's, none of this happens without God's Word. Physical food is important, just like physical strength is, but what's most important is the Word of God, which nourishes our souls, keeps us alive spiritually, converts us, does these things. Christians do not understand this today. They love to go to the buffet, right? Hog out, eat everything. Who eats pancakes and, and spare ribs on the same thing? Christians do at buffets, but they don't dine on the Word. This has got dust all over it, but boy, that plate of food looks good. And my pulled pork is something else. I should have brought it with a Bible. Amen. Amen. The Word. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, that man cannot live by bread alone, but by the Word of God. Without it, we shrivel up and die. And God has, in a sense, cut off His Word from Job. Obviously, Job felt like he was dying spiritually because he wasn't being nourished with the all-satisfying, nourishing, spiritually quickening, enlivening, life-giving Word of God. He's saying, I love that more than anything. I, I, don't, I, don't, I won't never eat physical food again if I could just get him to speak to me. You think I love my gold? Gold allows me to do things, that's all. It allows me to serve God in, in, in some certain ways, in specific ways, but, but God's Word is my true food, and it keeps me alive. You know, we believe this at this church, because if we didn't, we wouldn't have hour and 15-minute sermons. We believe the Word of God does its work, and it feeds and nourishes us. That's why we teach the way we do here. He is ultimately saying, I don't cherish my gold above all else. I don't even cherish my food above all else. I cherish the Word of God. It is my true treasure. It is my true sustenance. It nourishes me. He is saying this, and I think he was proving this, what he's saying here. I think he was proving it through his whole attitude that when God shut off his Word to him, look at how he's going bananas. He's proving it through his response to God's silence, is he not? He's proving that he loved God's Word. Anyone can say, I love God's Word above all else. You'll really know how much you love God's Word when you no longer have access to it because North Korea has come in and taken, you're a North Korean Christian, and they've come in and taken your Bible away from you, and now you don't know what to do. That's Job in a sense. You prove how much you cherish God's Word when you can't get to it. Or you prove how much you cherish God's Word because it's right before you and you spend time every day in it. He was proving it here through his response to God's silence. He was proving it. Amen? Let's move to our third. That was his declaration. He declared quite a few things. Let's move to the last D. 
his determination, verses 13 to 17. We begin in 13 and 14. This is what Job says, but God is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? Listen to this. This is a very important word phrase here. It's right in the, at the end of 13. What God desires, that he does. And then he says, for he will, and here's another great encouragement, for he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Verse 13, Job remembers a divine attribute that literally stops him in his tracks. He is desperate to come before God and argue his case. He declares that if he can find God, God would not only listen to him, but acquit him forever. And then he suddenly remembers the incommunicable attribute of immutability, God's unchangingness. He's like, I'm on a roll, and then he remembers, oh, wait a minute, but God is immutable and doesn't change. If I were to go to him and argue my case, and God has ordained for my suffering to last a certain period of time, it doesn't matter what I argue. He's not going to change. What he ordains, he does not change. That's what he's saying here. He's rocking and rolling. All of a sudden, he's like, oh, my goodness, I just remember God doesn't, he's not in the business of changing. What if I argue my case and he doesn't change his mind? That's what he's starting to say now. So he was doing really good, and now he's acting like me again. Oh, but what if? He's essentially saying to Eliphaz, if I were to find God and go to him and plead my case, what if he doesn't change his mind about my situation? What if I cannot convince him because my fiery trial and suffering is part of his, his immutable, unchanging, sovereign will? And he says very boldly, nobody can turn God back. Who could possibly do that? Nobody could. And he says, God does whatever he desires. It seems like Job was being a bit fatalistic here, you know, like he's kind of getting his hopes up and then he dashes his own hopes to pieces. Like he's saying, no, God is immutable and might not change my situation, so maybe why should I bother even trying to continue this quest on trying to find him? Haven't we all felt this way? Especially after years of praying for something in particular and seeing no change? Have you ever said to yourself, I have been praying for that for years, why bother anymore? doesn't change. After a while, we start to say that question. We ask to start to question ourselves. Why bother continuing to do this? And then when somebody suggests it again, we say, I, I've done that already, Eliphaz. There's a, a tinge of fatalism here, I think, in what he's saying, but I don't think he's really being fatalistic. I think what he's being is realistic, right? Like, you know, we pray for God to change a situation, but then we end our prayer with, but whatever your will is, do that right? Because we know that God may not change that situation because it may not be His will to change that situation. That's what Job is essentially doing. He's not being fatalistic. He's not giving up. He's just being realistic. He knows that God is immutable. He knows that God is unchanging. He knows that if God ordains something, it will surely take place and nothing can stop it or shorten its duration. He understands this. He's a pretty wise scholar, to be honest with you, Job was. If God ordained a, and for me personally, I was thinking about this, if God had ordained a six-month fiery trial for, for Pastor Phil here, guess what? It's going to happen, and no amount of my prayer or your prayer or prayer meetings or vigils and candles with wax burning your hand, no amount of that is going to change a darn thing. The trial is going to last six months. And I know I would want it to end on day two. You don't have to do this. Yes, I do. He knows. He understands. He's, not, he's being realistic, not fatalistic. Job was simply stating one possibility. If he finds God and pleads his case, God may or may not change his situation. If it is God's plan to end Job's suffering upon Job's request, God will surely end it. If not, Job's suffering will continue to run its course until it reaches its sovereign end. The sooner we come to terms with God's immutability in, in, in terms of that, the better off we'll be. That truth doesn't bring discord and disharmony into our lives. It brings peace knowing that God is in control and whatever He does will run its course. And if we're praying for change and it doesn't occur, occur that is God's will and He's going to run it through its duration and He's not going to bring it to an end a day late or a day short. I find comfort in God's immutability. I do. 
If God was a changing God, I don't know, what would we, are you kidding me? If he were like us, that means he loves me on Sunday when I'm at church, and then Monday when I start acting like a heathen again, he hates me. God never changes what he ordains. He is immutable. Think of it like this. He doesn't have to make changes because he planned all things and knows the outcome of all things. When you plan all things and know the outcome of all things, you don't have to make changes. You have a, a perfect plan that's being executed by sovereign decree. Why would I have to adjust that? I guess I made a mistake and didn't think through things over here. That's the way I think. That's not the way God thinks with his infinite mind. That's the mind of finite people. Everything occurs according to God's sovereign plan, the good, the bad, and the ugly. There are no changes needed from His end. The Bible sometimes speaks of God changing His mind and even relenting, uh, Genesis 6-6, Exodus 32-14, but these aren't real, literal examples of God actually changing His mind. He's immutable. He doesn't change His mind. They're examples of what we call anthropopathism, figures of speech in which the feelings or thought processes of us, finite humans, are ascribed to the infinite God. They're just a way to help us understand God's work from a human perspective. That's all it is. And some people read, well, God changed his mind and relented here, so God isn't immutable. He's mutable. He changes. You're not understanding what's being said. In Gen Let me give you an example. In Genesis 6.6, it says that God regretted making man on the earth, right? Does it not say that? It sounds like a change of perspective or attitude toward man to me. In Genesis 7, 23 to 24, it says that God destroyed everyone but eight people with a global flood. Man, you, you take the, the idea of God regretting making man and then destroying almost all of mankind, like 99.9999% of it with a global flood, it sounds to me like God did change his mind about humanity, doesn't it? It does. Did he actually change his mind? No. That is an example of anthropopathism. Now, some will say, well... God changed his mind, right, his attitude and mind toward Noah's generation because those folks were exceptionally wicked, right? This is an argument that's used to show that God changes. I've heard that before. But let me ask you a question. Was Noah's generation more wicked than our generation? Let's be honest. 62 million abortions since 1973. They couldn't have come up with those numbers in Noah's day. No mechanism to do it. 150 genders? In Noah's day, there were two, male and female. There was blurred sexuality. Transsexual princesses at the happiest place on earth? Yeah. Anna up there on top of that float, that's a man. Whatever. Elsa. Rampant pornography? It's everywhere. 2,400 divorces a day in the U.S., 2,400 dissolved marriages in the U.S. every day. There's one every 30 minutes, or 30 seconds, pardon me. 1.2 million violent crimes in 2020 in the U.S. alone. 6.5 million property crimes in 2020 in the U.S. alone. Was Noah's generation more wicked than our generation? No, you'd have to be a fool to believe that. They're both equally wicked this generation, and every generation. Humanity was terribly wicked in Noah's day. Genesis 6-5 says so, but it is equally wicked today, if not more so. Listen, if God had literally regretted creating man on earth and changed his mind about humanity altogether as some propose, we would not be here right now, would we? And you can't say, well, it was a generational thing. No, that generation wasn't any more wicked than our generation. They're all equally wicked. What am I telling you? God does not change. You're not understanding the verse properly. Verse 14a, Job tells Eliphaz that divine immutability ensures that God's appointed plans for his suffering and life will be completed in due time. This is what he's saying. 
In verse 14b, Job states that divine immutability and other such incommunicable attributes exist in the infinite mind of God, which makes them difficult for mere humans and finite people like us to comprehend and understand. Amen? It's hard to understand how terrible things happen, and yet God's ordained it. It's tough to get your mind around that. It's tough to get your mind around the Trinity. It's tough to get your mind around how God's Word was written by men, but it's God's Word. There's just things that are just hard for our finite minds to understand. And Job says there's many such things in the mind of God. He's saying, look, I'm not pretending to understand it all, but I know that God is unchanging. And if He doesn't want to change my thing, He's not going to until the appointed time. And maybe the thing that scared Job almost more than anything else was the fact that maybe God's plan was to carry him all the way to Sheol, death in that mode of suffering, which would bring fright into any of our lives. Maybe there's no relief coming. Amen? Verses 15 and 16, Therefore I am terrified at His presence. When I consider, I am in dread of Him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Verse 15, Job tells Eliphaz that the presence of God fills him with terror and dread. The Hebrew word for terrified is Bahal, B-A-H-A-L. It appears about 50 times in the Old Testament, including the 11 times that it appears in Aramaic. Uh, and that would be focused in books like Daniel that have Aramaic sections. It means to be terrified, frightened, perplexed, confounded. That's Bahal. It is also used to demonstrate the, the dread that people may bring upon others, like you know a king bringing dread on, on a foreign power, 2 Samuel 4. One, here in our text, it is used to connote terror that produces rever reverential fear. It's a, it's a holy fear of God that Job is talking about here. I am in holy fear and respect of God at the, at the thought of being in His presence. That's what he's saying. The thought of standing in God's presence makes Job very respectful, even fearful toward God. What is Job displaying here through his poetic comments. What is the beginning of wisdom? It is the fear of the Lord. He's saying, I'm terrified. I fear God. Job is displaying wisdom because it is the beginning. Wisdom, it, it comes out of a, it actually displays. If you have fear for God, it shows that you have wisdom. That's what I'm meaning to say. Proverbs 9, 10. Job is displaying wisdom. Wise people fear God. They respect Him. They honor Him. They tremble at His holiness. His awesome, glorious presence fills them with holy dread and joy. Those who do not fear the Lord are unwise fools. Psalm 14, 1. He's just displaying wisdom because he's talking about the presence of God bringing fear into him. And I think this is one of the big problems in the church today and in the world. There's no fear of God. It's just all love. There's no reverence. How <laughs> foolish. We have taken grace and turned it into a license for sin. That's our mistake. That's antinomianism. We need to get back to fear. Not because God is going to crush us like a grape, but because He's awesome and holy. And His disciplinary hand should not be something that, you know, we take lightly. We might live differently if we change our attitude toward Him. In verse 16a, Job continues to display wisdom as he further describes his wisdom to the awesome Almighty. And by the way, he uses that title for God Almighty several times, and it literally means all-powerful. What does he say about the Almighty here? He's displaying wisdom. He's got that fear, but he says, my heart is made faint. The thought of being in God's presence makes his heart melt. And in verse 16b, Job states very plainly that the Almighty, the all-powerful one, has terrified me. How so? Well, I think that the fact that Job was the most powerful human being in, in the East at that time and probably anywhere in the world, the fact that this Almighty reduced him to rubble in 24 hours, <laughs> that might inspire a little reverential fear of the Almighty, amen? I am the most powerful man of the East. I am now nothing within 24 hours. And God is behind that because He's sovereign and immutable. I think this is what he's saying here. What God has done to me brings some reverential fear. He's also considering what the Almighty, what else the Almighty might do, right? I've lost everything because of him, essentially. He's over all things. I've lost everything. What else could he do? Well, I think the thing that terrified Job the most was the idea that God, he may not ever be able to find God's presence again or hear God's voice. 
because he cherished God's word above the sustenance that kept him alive, his own food. Last verse, verse 17, yet I am not, this is wonderful, yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. Job is doing something really cool here. He is describing his determination. He tells Eliphaz that he will not be silenced regarding his innocence. He will continue to try to find God. He will continue to try to find God so he can argue his case despite the thick darkness that has enveloped his life. He's saying, you know what, my situation's bad. It's pretty dire. I can't find God. I go north, south, east, west. I can't find him. I want to find him. I want to speak to him. But you know what? And God is immutable, meaning he may not even change my circumstances if I were to find him. And, and, and I'm in pain. I'm suffering. I'm weakened. My heart is melting. I am destroyed. But I will continue to try to seek him and try to find him so that I can bring my case before him, so that I know the good judge, my good godly judge, my holy judge will acquit me. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to be dismayed or dissuade. I will continue the good fight of faith is what he's saying. That's an encouragement to us. Closing. Job was anguished, anguished totally anguished in his heart. Just Anguish just saturated him. He was anguished over not being able to find God in order to plead his case, right? That's really the purpose of chapter 23. That's the point. The question is, where can we find God during our fiery trials? That would be an application for us. First of all, we need to remember that God is omnipresent, which means that He is literally everywhere all the time. There is never a moment when God is not present. It was Job's suffering that had distorted his thinking, his theology, and caused him to forget this important truth, right? Remember, God is with you even when it doesn't seem like it. Secondly, God is found in Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in the flesh, God come to earth. Isaiah 9, 6, John 3, 16, Galatians 4, 4 to 5. Jesus is God. He's incarnate. He is the, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Hebrews 1, 3, He is identical to God because He's God. That's what the Hebrew author is arguing. Who is Jesus? He is God with us. He is, what's His name? What name is used to refer to His presence? Emmanuel. That's a Christmas thing we talk about. God with us is His name. Matthew 1, 23. In fact, I'll take it further, God cannot be found outside of Jesus Christ. You cannot find God without Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. John 14, 6. Everyone thinks they have God, but they don't have Jesus. Guess what? They don't have God. They don't know God. They have a God of their own imagination. God can also not be found, He cannot be found outside of Christ. He cannot be found outside of the Holy Spirit, who is also God and the third person of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the regenerator, the illuminator, the revealer of truth. Ephesians 2.5, Acts 16.14, John 14.26. The Holy Spirit, unless the Holy Spirit opens the heart and mind, that person will not perceive the true God, will not come to know the true God. You cannot know God without Christ, without the Spirit. And both Christ and the Spirit are God, part of the Trinity. Now, some of God's invisible attributes are clearly perceived in creation, namely His eternal power and divine nature, Romans 1.20. But the starting point for actually finding God is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to know where God is? Go to Christ. And thirdly, this is very practical, God can be found in His Word, the Bible. We find God in Scripture. We hear His words when we read the Bible, and we hear His voice when we read it aloud. Remember, Job did not have a Bible. Sorry for him. He lived before Scripture was, was written. If Bibles had been around in Job's day, 
He would have owned probably at least 10 of them, half of them being MacArthur Study Bibles. And he would have never complained about trying to find God because he would have known to go right to God's Word to find God, to hear God's voice, to see God's words. He would have known this. He was fully dependent on God speaking to him through prayer. And God had shut that down for the duration of this trial for good reason. Remember, he's refining Job. If he'd had a Bible, he'd have went right to it and said, I have, you, know, you need to go to God. I keep going to him because I'm reading his word. Ha ha. Cha-ching, look. R.C. Sproul. He's got R.C. Sproul notes on the bottom. It's a Reformation Bible. He would have done this, but he didn't have it. He would have gone right to his Bible to be in the presence of God. So when darkness envelops us and God seems distant and he even seems absent, we can go to Christ in the Spirit. We can, we can, we can go to Scripture to be with God. We can go to Scripture to hear God's Word. We can go to Scripture and we can read it out loud and, and we can actually hear God's voice even though it sounds like mine, but it's still God speaking in that moment because it's His Word that I'm reading. You don't have to go far. He's imminent and with you. He manifests Himself in His Word. He's in Christ who is right here with us. He's not far off. Flee to Him. Flee to Him. You go to, you go to God's Word to meet with God, you will meet with Him every time, guaranteed. Guaranteed. You can, I, I say go to the Word before even spending time in prayer because just about anything can speak back to you in prayer. Demons can respond, right? I love prayer. Prayer is important. It's huge. Prayer in the name of Jesus and the Spirit, I don't think you're going to be hearing from demons. There's a way to pray, a right way to pray, but this is the most sure thing you have. Demons can't mess with this. You go to this, and you've got God's presence and His Word, His voice. When Listen to this. Dominion and fear are with God. God just said that to you. Sounded like Phil Baker, didn't it? It was God's Word. But He knows the way I take. When He has tried me, I shall come out as gold. It sounds like me, right? That's God's Word. God speaking that through Job. You open this and read it aloud, you're hearing the voice of God. 